0: Well, I have a rather serious question to ask you this morning, church. And although the question itself is a heavy one, you may find that the answer, at least at the beginning, is even heavier. We could at least try to ease the burden of this question You know, take out the old spiritual sandpaper and shave off some of its hard edges. And although many in our day have attempted to remove the sting of what we're about to read, I am convinced that to do that would be pastoral malpractice. Now, I believe the question before us today is intended to be heavy. God, the Holy Spirit, has specifically and intentionally revealed this truth in His Holy Scripture because the stakes are high and because the answer to this weighty question is not up to you. It's not up to me. Try as we may to move the needle on this one. The Lord has spoken And He's spoken clearly. So, let's just rip off the band-aid, shall we? Here it is. simple, straightforward question that we encounter in Scripture here in Luke 13. Will many be saved or few? As far as I can tell, the passage before us today is the most clear and direct place in all of Scripture where we see this question answered. And it's asked to Jesus Himself. You know, the, the Savior, the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. So if anyone ought to be an authority on this topic, on the topic of salvation, it's probably Him. And we'll soon see that Jesus' answer... Is not fuzzy, is not ambiguous. It's as plain as the nose on your face. So let's look together at Jesus' words to this heavy question Will many be saved or or few? Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have not already, to Luke chapter 13. We'll be beginning in verse 22. If you're using the church bibles provided in the seatbacks in front of you, you can find that on page 820, Luke 13 beginning in verse 22. Let's uh, let's pray one more time, asking the Lord for his help before we go to his holy word. The sovereign God and gracious heavenly Father, please prepare our hearts. And please open our eyes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read Luke 13, beginning in verse 22. All right. Helps if I'm on the right page, too. Get a totally different sermon. He, speaking of Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages teaching. And journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we, we ate, in your, ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first, who will be last. At that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. Sobering words, right? Sobering and straightforward. Someone approaches Jesus and asks point blank, how many people... Are going to be saved, Jesus? In the end, are most people destined for heaven or for hell? Now, you'd get quite a range of answers if you asked that question to a random assortment of people out on the street. you may get no answers on the street on a day like today. <laughs> but we're not interested in most people's answers, are we? We're interested in Jesus' answer. We're interested in the truth. And you'll remember what Jesus said before He went to the cross to purchase salvation. He said to Pilate, I came to bear witness to the truth. And He has. Now Notice what Jesus does not say to this question about the who, about the scope of salvation. He does not say something like this. Well, I guess we'll just have to see. We'll have to wait and see how many of them accept me into their hearts. That was not His answer, was it? No. You see, Jesus already knows the answer. And we should also note That an individual person, a person singular, is the one who poses this question to Jesus. And yet, when Jesus provides his answer, he addresses his answer look at verse 23 to whom? Well, to them. One man, or perhaps woman or child, asks the question to him in this crowd, and he intentionally provides a collective answer. In other words, he's not just talking to this guy, is he? He's using this question and his response as a teaching moment, and he means for his answer to be heard by all. So, what's his answer? It's an important one, isn't it? Well, as is often the case, Jesus' answer is not a one-word answer. Rather, His answer takes the form of an illustration or a, a word picture, if you will. Look at verse 24. What's Jesus say in response to this weighty question? Well, He tells us that the door of salvation is narrow and that there are many. Who do not enter it. I'm just gonna let that sit for a moment. The door, salvation's door, is narrow, according to the Savior. And those who fail to enter are many. Now, that's not all he says, praise the Lord. He also tells us, it gets a little worse before it gets better, just full disclosure. He tells us that the time for salvation is limited. Look at verses 25 to 27. There will be a time, Jesus continues, after addressing the scope of salvation, He addresses its chronology. There will be a time when the master of the house rises and shuts salvation's door. What's more... This is the chilling part. It is entirely possible. Entirely possible, according to the Savior, to have an association with the Lord, some sort of connection with Him, and yet not have entered through salvation's narrow gate. He says, not once, but twice, for emphasis, I do not know where you come from. Now, is it that Jesus doesn't have that information available to him? No. Jesus knows everything. He knows where they come from. What's he getting at here? Well, in this where you come from line, Jesus is getting at how they got there. Translation. You have not come here through the narrow gate. I don't know how you got here, but it wasn't through the gate. And he should know, friends, because he is the gate. Isn't that what scripture teaches in John 10? I am, the words of Jesus, plain as day, I am the door. The word can also be translated as gate. Jesus says in John 14, 6, many of you know this one by heart, I am the way, the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father, where's the Father, in glory. No one gets there but Through me. He is the gate. He ought to know if you came through it or not, right? And what Jesus does next, after we're reeling from this information about the scope of salvation, about the chronology of salvation... He gives a contrast of the plight between those who enter through salvation's narrow door and then the rewards of those who do. Excuse me, those who do not enter and those who do. There's there's a contrast. Scripture is often doing this, is it not? Jesus is often laying before us uh, this, not that. And so he makes a clear contrast here between those destined for eternal bliss, those who've entered through this door, this narrow door, and those who have not. Note, by the way, nearly all that we have, all the information that we have right now about hell, we have through whom? Who gave us the information? Jesus. We pick up some stuff elsewhere as God graciously reveals to us the weight of our sins and their wages, but it's the Savior who gives us most of the information that we know about hell. He tells us in verse 28, it's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now don't let that fall upon deaf ears as if it's just poetry. Weeping, Jesus says, characterizes those who don't enter this narrow gate. Weeping is lament. It's when you're overcome by grief and sadness. This is eternal weeping. What's gnashing of teeth? Well, it's more than just General grief, when you're gnashing your teeth, it's because you're writhing in pain, right? Or because you're so angry, you're so filled with venom or hatred or something, you're having a physical reaction to it hell is not merely generic emotional sadness it also includes according to the savior real physical pain by the way i didn't pick this passage we're just reading through luke this is one. By the way, Friendship Union Church. This is why we do this. I, Benjamin, and I don't sit down on a Monday morning saying, "Where are we going today, guys?" The Bible forces us to talk not about our theological hobby horses, but about the truths that God sees necessary and sufficient for you and for me to grow up into godliness. I've been nervous about this sermon all week long. (laughs) This isn't what I picked. This is what Jesus picked to reveal to you. Weeping, verse 28, and gnashing of teeth. And, And look at this next thing that Jesus reveals to us. There is somehow about hell... A clear awareness of those in it, of their terrible punishment, compared to those in the glories of heaven. Again, I'm I'm just going to read you verse 28. You following? In that place. What place? The place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In that place, well, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I guess that's obvious. Then he continues. When you see Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. It's more than just that you're weeping and gnashing your teeth. It's that you are able to comprehend. You are cognitively aware that though you are in this eternally desperate and terrible state, there is a heaven and a gracious God there. Rewarding His own in eternal bliss. Ah! By the way, we see the same truth, don't we, in a parable that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, nameless rich man, important as though he was on earth, is able to see that wretched, poor Lazarus up in heaven... And he's appealing to him to do anything about his plight. Send him just to to take a drip of water to soothe my tongue. Abraham's answer, no can do. There is an eternal chasm that has been fixed. This is what we call in the world of theology conscious torment. Torment. Those who are separated from Christ and who pay for their own sins rather than Jesus paying for them on the cross will endure a hell of eternal conscious torment. Jesus teaches this. The Savior teaches this. There is no such thing as resting in peace outside of Christ. There is no such thing as fading into oblivion. These are the words of Christ. This stark and chilling reality then is contrasted with what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Now we could spend some time on this. I'm going to resist the urge. We're going to have some self-control this morning. Jesus talks a whole lot about the kingdom of God, doesn't he? And what does he liken the kingdom of God to here? It's synonymous. He's using it synonymously with eternal life. Eternal life. He proceeds to tell us who's going to be there. He said that the door is narrow. So who's entered this narrow door? Who has salvation available through the door himself? Christ and Christ alone. Well, we find some expected figures there to be sure. Who's there? Well, we see the patriarchs Abraham, the man of faith, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets. I don't know about you. After I read a passage like this, I I start to question and really wrestle. Well, so then, if the door is that narrow, and we see for sure the the heavyweights of the faith, if you will, the prophets and the patriarchs there, then is heaven perhaps reserved for just a few? Spiritually elite. Is it for the titans of faithfulness and piety? Now, just keep reading. Jesus is about to remove some eternal tension in verse 29. Note that also in the kingdom of God, in eternal eternal life in that domain, there will be some unexpected characters there, won't there? At least according to the stuffy Gentile-hating Jews. People are going to come, Jesus says, from the east and the west, from the north and from the south, and a lot of them. I'm just going to read you one little passage of Scripture that we read. Oh, man, we we, we probably read this once a month in some way, shape, or fashion. It's just so important, and it frames our understanding of life and eternity. This is Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. We're just going to look at another angle of this Scripture. Revelation 7, just a, a peek into the heavenly reality. After this the apostle John writes under the inspiration of the holy spirit after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number wait a minute we'll we'll get to the number A great multitude, he said, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a narrow door, isn't it? There are many who will not enter the narrow door, but by God's grace, by God's compassion and faithfulness, He has flung open the doors beyond just the covenant community of Israel, and He has invited peoples from every tribe and language and and kindred and nation from the north and from the south and from the east and the west, this teeming multitude of different colors and languages all giving glory to God. That's what heaven will look like. Which is why Jesus says in verse 30, this gets ripped out of context fairly often, the first will be last, and the last will be first. It's more than just a reference to the church potluck line. Who's hearing Jesus' words? Well, He's teaching through Judea, Israel, the Jews. By the way, they expected His answer to be, few get into heaven. It's a narrow door. They expected it was just them. And Jesus' staggering answer is there are perhaps far fewer than you think going to enter this narrow gate and perhaps far more than you ever dared imagine from the north and the south and the east and the west. The last, those repugnant Gentiles will be first. And the first, you, the nation of Israel, shall be last. Now you got to ask yourself, what are they doing? Right? What are they doing in the kingdom of God? Eternity is a long time. What are those throngs from the north and the south and the east and the west? What are they doing? Well, they're... Obviously, floating on clouds, duh. <laughs> Haven't you seen the paintings? That's not what Jesus says. Let's look here. Verse 29. We just get one little, one little tidbit about what's happening in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Verse 29. What are they doing? They're reclining at table. Translation, they're feasting some of you are like yes it's way better than clouds let me give you just a taste pun intended of what this feast will entail it's written about several times. Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, looking far ahead to the consummation of all things and the reward for those who have entered through the narrow door whose name is Jesus into eternal life. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, salvation, the new Jerusalem often described as a mountain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. For whom? All of them. All of the peoples there on the mountain of the Lord. A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow. And aged wine well-refined. I don't know what you do if you're a vegetarian or if you think wine is sinful. Too, too much? Too soon? it's a feast. It's a a glorious supper. We're sitting, reclining at the very table of God, sharing in His love and joy and bounty and goodness. Now, consider for a moment as we turn ourselves back to the text here and. Luke 13 from Isaiah, consider how shocking Jesus' words must have come across to those within an earshot of His voice. He's talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about being shut out, being excluded from eternal life. This is is heavy. And some of these many who are shut out that He's referring to, are right there, standing in front of him. Note their response. Come on, Lord. How could you possibly not know us? Isn't that what they said? We ate with you. We were there when you were teaching in our streets. God, if anyone should be included, it should be us. And isn't this precisely Jesus' hard-to-swallow point? Some of the many friends who are being cast into an eternal hell of conscious torment actually think, this is so sad. They think they're fine. They think they're heaven-bound. Look at their words. First, they're calling Him lord right lord they say to him they're familiar with his teaching they've spent time in his presence isn't this the same sobering truth that shannon read to us just a moment ago from matthew chapter 7 by the way this is how jesus ends his sermon on the mount knockout punch this is one of the scariest realities church that i can think of that there will be some on the final day who think that they're in. They are convinced that they are heaven-bound. And to their everlasting shock and horror, they find that damnation, not delight, is their eternal lot. Now, in a place like southwestern Pennsylvania, we need to hear this, don't we? Most of us here grew up going to church of some sort. Most of us here have a framework for the God of the Bible and may even say that we believe that He exists. Yeah, I believe that Jesus did the thing. You know, that thing on the cross. Yeah, I believe that. According to the mouth of the Savior Himself, there will be... Many, not a few, not a handful, many who arrive to eternity's gates thinking they're in and they're not. I just, I, don't, I cannot conjure up a more frightening reality. So I'm going to invite you, church, to consider Jesus' words here and his question, this question before us very seriously is a question I've been asking myself with all seriousness throughout the week. I think we're meant to ask this question. Could this be me? Not a small little sliver. Not a side demographic outside the bell curve. Jesus says, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, calling him Lord, I never knew you. I mean, come on. If some of the people who had gathered to hear Jesus teaching right then and there were in that category, then perhaps it's possible that this could be true of some of the people who gathered to hear Jesus teaching teaching in church today consider for a moment the kind of people that jesus includes in this passage and in the parallel passage that shannon read and in others they're calling him lord matthew 7 says lord we prophesied in your name you done that rightly we perform many mighty works in your name there was a church doing that here in Washington. You couldn't beat people away from the doors. If anyone's good, surely it's those folks prophesying, performing miracles in the name of Jesus, calling Him Lord. What gives? Jesus says, I never knew you. This gives me pause. I hope, I hope it gives you pause as i consider the the people that jesus is encountering the religious leaders who so very often hear jesus words see evidence of jesus divinity and miracles I got a head full of bible knowledge and the the letters after their name to prove it synagogue leaders and pharisees and Sadducees and the inn of the religious theological crowd. As a pastor, I need to take this passage very seriously. I've been asking myself, I hope what you're asking now, could this be me? Now, Some of you here in the room have perhaps been conditioned to disdain that question. Some of you may be very politely now and internally flying a little flag at me. Some of you have a theological objection to that question. You say, now wait a minute, Zeb. Don't get too far ahead of yourself. You don't want people here at Friendship Communities Church to start questioning their assurance of salvation, do you? Of course I don't want them to do that. The Bible is quite clear, abundantly clear. You don't have to sit in eternal agony and anxiety wondering, am I one of the few? Please, Lord. No, you can know His God. You can know that you know that you know. And this is not the point of Jesus' sermon here in Luke 13. So we're not going to dive into all that. But if you need to hear this, I'm going to give you some resources. They're Bible resources because that's the truth. Three places where you can go if you're struggling as a follower of Jesus to reconcile your own assurance of salvation. How do I know? The stakes are so high. How do I know that I'm in, that I've entered through the narrow door? Good question. That's why the Bible talks about it so much. First one, read the book of First John. Like the whole thing. It's not very long. Five chapters. Read the book of 1 John. Friends, the book of 1 John was written... To give you assurance of your salvation in Jesus. That's the whole point of the book. Right, you know that's it, because the book says so. 1 John 5:13. I write these things to you, says the Apostle John, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you know? Apparently, John thinks so. And the Holy Spirit, who carried him along as he wrote that statement and his book, thinks so. If you're struggling with assurance of salvation, read 1 John. Read John 10. That's another good one. No one can snatch you from his hand, Jesus' hand, or from his Father's hand. He's got quite a grip. I love that passage. Read Romans 8. Those three. There's a lot of other places you could go, but if you're if you're wrestling with assurance of salvation, I am not presuming to get you questioning those who are firmly standing upon Christ and Christ alone as their as their only hope of heaven, your assurance of salvation. All I'm doing is asking the question that Jesus is answering. Some of you, perhaps a bigger group of you, may have an emotional objection to what I'm presuming to do this morning. Seb, what a mean thing to do. This is real. People really feel this. To get people questioning their salvation. I mean, come on. I I struggle with this anyway. This keeps me up at night. Why would you get me questioning this? Jesus did it. I'm not trying to be funny. The stakes are high. And forgive me, but if you are wrestling with sleep at night because you don't know if you're going to heaven or to hell for all eternity, then maybe what you need that night is not a good night's rest, but maybe you need to wrestle through this. This is a very big deal. And it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's the grace of God. It's the gracious warning of Jesus that says, do you know what this weeping and gnashing of teeth will be like? You don't have to do it. Should we get people questioning their salvation? 2 Corinthians 13 says yes. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There it is. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? There is no more important question. There is no higher test than this one. Have I entered through the narrow door? Do I belong to Jesus? Now, this leads us, I think, to some very practical applications. What, what, what do we do as we're wrestling through these questions? Well, I love that I really don't have to ask that question and think hard about the answer in this passage because Jesus just gives it to us like a layup here. Straight up, verse 24, what does He tell His listeners to do when it comes to this narrow door? Verse 24. Strive. That's the imperative. That's the verb. That's the command. Strive to enter through the narrow door. The Greek word here, the, the word Used here in Luke 13 is a word that can also be translated as intense exertion. It's a word, excuse me, it's a word that was often used um, for athletes training for competition. Intensely exert yourself. Strive, Jesus says, to enter through this narrow door. In fact, this same root word from the Greek here is the basis for our English word today, agonize. Agonize over this if you must. Strive. Intensely exert yourself. What are, what, what's all this sweat for, Jesus? Why are we trying so hard? You've got to. Friend, you must find this door and go through it. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It can be easy to do this. Eternal life is not, it is not a matter of how much striving, how much agonizing or effort extending that you do. The Bible is clear over and over and over again without, without a shadow of a doubt that no one can be saved. No one enters heaven by virtue of their own efforts. So what Jesus is not saying is, the more you strive, the more points you earn with God, and when you earn enough, heaven. That is not Christianity. Jesus is saying, the only ones who enter heaven are the ones who go through the narrow door. So, you better find that door. Strive. Strive labor yearn pray have you entered the door, through the narrow door are you sure that when you draw your last breath that weeping and gnashing of teeth is not the wages that your life has yielded but that because Christ died and rose again and because you came through him for salvation Christ and Christ alone is the only way that we get saved. But, but we've gone too far if we say we just should sit back and wait for it to happen. No. Work. Are you not sure? Get after it. Pray. Read. Read. Yearn, talk to a trusted loved one. Uh, uh, The pastors, the elders here would love nothing more. Have conversations with you about some of these things that you might potentially be wrestling through. Strive to enter through that door. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over one more objection. Uh, we'll, We'll undoubtedly get to it later. It's the objection about why the Christian faith is so narrow. You ever had that objection lobbed at you? So, Jeez, Christian, so narrow-minded. All the thousands of people, excuse me, all the thousands of faiths, all the billions of people in the world, what makes you think, so smug, what makes you think that you have the right one? It's a big question. It's an important question. The simple answer is... Because Jesus, the only way to get to heaven, says that He's it. We believe that. We do believe that the way is narrow. That means you got to take the narrow-minded label and wear it. Be gracious about it. Jesus was the one who called the door narrow. He's the one who said, I'm the door. No one gets in, but comes through me. you were in a house that was burning and you were doomed to be consumed by fire and a fireman broke through the wall and said quick we got to get out of here come this way how preposterous would it be for that person in that burning building to say a little narrow minded of you don't you think There's only one way for me to get out of this burning building. What if I want to go this way? It doesn't work that way, does it, friends? We're talking about humanity careening off the cliff that they have justly deserved. And a gracious God. Saying, there's one way out, and I'm it, and I died to give it to you. Come. All right. We will quickly hit this next part. I hope these words, because Jesus said them and meant them, I hope that these words have sobered your soul this morning. They're intended to, and yet, if you're sitting here trembling, at the terrible reality that awaits a sinful world that's in rebellion to His Maker, please don't shut your eyes and ears to the compassion that Jesus has superimposed over all of this. It's hard. It's true. And Jesus, over and above it all, gives You haven't heard the full message from Jesus in Luke 13 if you stop with the stark reality that most of our rebellious race will eventually get hell because it's what their sins justly deserve. It's true, but that's not why Jesus is here in Luke 13, is it? Jesus didn't set aside His glory from heaven to come down and sneer at a bunch of doomed sinners so as to say, Ha! Stinks to be you guys! Most of y'all are going to burn in hell. It's not why He's here, is it? I'm wondering, dear friends, if you noticed what the Bible told you so easy to miss, right before Jesus answers this very important question. We skipped over it on purpose. I want, I want you to, to feel the tension, and then I want you to see what Jesus is doing to relieve the tension. What's verse 22 say? He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Okay big deal. Jesus is teaching through Israel, headed to Jerusalem, answers some really hard questions. This is a very big deal. Where's Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem. Do you know what He intends to do in Jerusalem? He's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to die on purpose. You remember what Jesus said? Predicting His his death in advance. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to rise on the third day. He told it before it happened. You remember what the angel said before Jesus was even born on the earth? You will call His name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. Remember what Jesus pronounced in Luke 9, 9, 51? This was a few chapters back. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He says here plainly at the end of Luke 13, no one dies sent by God but at Jerusalem. Now, he wasn't trying to say, there's never been a martyr who hasn't died in Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying is, this is the the holy city, the place where the temple is. This is supposed to be the bastion of truth and faithfulness. And I'm going to this place, like many God has sent before me, and I'm going to die. You're going to kill me there. The only sinless human to ever live. I want you to see then, the grace that is just bracketed through Jesus Christ hard and heavy teaching about hell. You better go through the only door, the only portal to heaven, the the portal of Jesus. But before He says that, we see He's going to the cross to purchase that path. And then, without clearing His throat, verse 31 tells us, at that very hour, When the Pharisees come, and and they tell him, hey, Herod's after you, man. Now, it kind of makes you wonder, the Pharisees have not really been a big fans of Jesus up to this point. Do they really have his best interest in mind? Maybe they're in cahoots with him. We don't really know for sure, but Jesus' answer to them is what? Go and tell, this is so fun, go and tell that fox. Go tell him. He just killed John the Baptist. This is a pretty powerful guy. Jesus is not scared. Go and tell that fox. I'm doing my work. I'm bringing the kingdom. I'm casting out demons. I'm performing cures today, tomorrow, the third day. Man alive, there's been so much written about whether the third day is a reference to Jesus' resurrection from the grave or whether he's just talking about, yeah, Herod, I'm getting to it. won't be long. And then I'll I'll be out of your jurisdiction. Don't worry about it. We, We won't get into that now. But he gets to the point where he laments out loud. He says it twice. When you say a name twice in the Bible, that's uh, meant to uh, be a term or a, a pattern of endearment. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, his heart is breaking for his beloved. How many times, how many times have I yearned, have I longed to gather you together under the wings of my protection? So notice... This teaching about hell that might keep you up at night is bracketed, it's bookended before and after with Jesus going to Jerusalem to take the penalty to be the door by which eternal life can be seized. He's weeping, he's crying, he's yearning for Jerusalem. He'll do it again in a couple chapters in Luke 19. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But you wouldn't. Why is the gate so wide and the road so broad that leads to destruction? They they wouldn't. Does God choose? Oh yeah. And so do we. In ways that we don't understand. No one gets to hell No one weeps and gnashes teeth for all eternity, but that has not chosen it for themselves. If you walk away from today in just a moment, and your conclusion as the result from hearing these words from Jesus about hell is, God, you're harsh. That more would go to destruction than would go to eternal life. You have missed the point. If you walk away from today racked with worry and doubt because you're you're just wondering, have I done enough to get through the door? You've missed the point. The whole point of the passage is that Jesus has done it. He was going to Jerusalem when He said it, and He was weeping over Jerusalem as He was walking to pay the price for your sins so you could enter through the door of His body and drink His blood and be clothed with His righteousness. Do you see? This is not a harsh God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I have a clip that I would like to end with. I don't do this often, forgive me. Uh, It's a longer clip than normal. Um, My father forwarded this to me from a godly man, a Canadian, some of you here will appreciate that, whose name is D.A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson is a um, professor of theology, has been a professor of theology at Trinity, uh, evangelical divinity school i just missed him he retired before i uh, i was trying to take some classes with him i wanted to get in but here is da carson addressing the tension of eternal punishment and the weight of god's wrath and yet helping the people of god to come to grips with his mercy and his kindness and his grace i can't say it better So I'd like you just to watch and listen to D.A. Carson.
1: Picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. (laughs) The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, and Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the the whole Passover meal with your family? Of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and it's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. you got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight. You, you, you know? I, I know what, what God says, and I put the blood there, but, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, Go ahead. but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Amen. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I I tried hard, you know. I did did my best. It It was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith. Not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb.
0: If you uh, you need to listen to that again because you couldn't hear it well enough or because you just need to process more slowly, I'd be happy to send you that link. Which man lost his son? The one who was brimming over with confidence that the Lord would pass over the blood of the Lamb that had been painted on the door? Or the one who was wringing his hands with anxiety, but had still been covered by the blood of the Lamb? The answer is neither. Because, friends, it is not the intensity of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us. Here is Jesus, and he's a straight-shooter. And He tells us about hell. He warns us about what's coming. He pleads with us to enter through the narrow door. It's small. It's narrow. It's not as wide as the path to destruction. But He has come to seek and to save the lost. And if you want His salvation, if you long for reconciliation with God, if you believe that Jesus died to take away your sin and and your separation from a holy and perfect God, and if it's your intention to follow Him and to desire Him, then it's not the intensity of your faith that gets you into heaven. It's the object of your faith. So you can rest after this chilling message From a true Savior about an eternal hell, in the blessed assurance that if Jesus is your Lord, He will hold you fast. Thanks for your patience today. I'd love us to close by singing that song, He will hold me fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. And tell us the truth about us, the truth about life, the truth about death, the truth about heaven and hell, the truth about who's going. Lord, and our simple plea this morning is that you would light a fire beneath us a striving fire, a yearning fire, a wholehearted desire to follow after Jesus, to, to pass through the narrow door, to be covered by the blood of the spotless Lamb. And guard us, Father, from pride or presumption. Guard us from our own self righteousness that would seek to say, Because I believe it real hard, that's why I'm in. Give us the simple assurance. Jesus, because you have died and risen again that you will hold your sheep fast. Thank you, Christ, that you are the good shepherd and that you will lose none of your sheep. Not one. Thank you. We pray and praise you. And we offer up all these things in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen.